And Father God, we do pray for the believers in Hong Kong and Australia, the, the leaders of the different churches, and also believers and, and leaders of churches all over the world and countries where there is uh, persecution um, of, of the saints in Jesus' name and because of Jesus. Um, Father, we pray that that you would give them boldness in the midst of this persecution, that you would strengthen them, help them to speak the truth and love against this wave of uh, wickedness that is spreading um, and that is growing and that is uh, strong, Lord, and that you would uh, soften hearts of those who are doing the persecuting and help them just as Saul uh, came to believe in your son and it was just an amazing transformation and unbelievable miracle that you would do the same in the hearts of, of all of these leaders who would persecute those who believe in you and call upon your name. God be, um, strengthen them and help them. Those that are in, in prison, those that are facing death, those that are at risk of losing jobs because they speak your truth mm-hmm. in Jesus' name. Mm-hmm. And Father, for my wife and myself and on behalf of the congregation, it's just been such a joy, Father, that you have been able to use technology to unite the body of Christ all around the world. Mm-hmm. And Father, as we um, are able to use this technology to be together in real time and to feel the strengths and the um, encouragement with one another, that wherever we are, um, we know that uh, we are your children. And as it has been said, you are sovereign over all of the world, of the whole world, and the world is yours and the fullness therein. So we take confidence. Togetherness, we have this bond between us, face the coming situation, provide them with financial also for these government that for both the building and for favour with them, uh, preparing and um, caring for these uh, mothers and uh, that uh, they would see Jesus through their ministry, Father, and uh, it would, that they would reap a harvest for the kingdom, Father. And uh, I just thank you all now, Father, for the fact that everyone is now online and we not unite together. And we are your children indeed, Father. I just thank you in the precious name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Amen. Well, Phyllis and uh, Stuart, there are some prayer warriors on this group that have written down all your requests, and they will continue praying on an ongoing basis. So be assured that you are supported. Thank you so much. Thank you. We praise the Lord. That's wonderful. wonderful. I bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. It means a lot to me. Wonderful meeting you. Thank you. I'll come in again now that I've met you. (laughs) I won't be be so shy. (laughs) We're not scared. (laughs) No, I'm not scared. (laughs) Okay. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Well, we got to get started in our study a little bit later today, but that's okay. We want to get into the last part of chapter 11 in the book of Romans. 
Some of you perhaps wondered if we'd ever get here, but today's the day to complete chapter 11, 9 through 11 in the book of Romans. And appropriately, Paul ends this not only division of the book of Romans, but I think everything beginning from uh, chapter 1, he ends in praise of God. So we will focus on praising God this morning, not that we don't every Sunday morning, but this morning particularly because that's the focus of the passage. Written to Jews and Gentiles in the city of Rome, Paul is addressing this to Christians. I've stressed that throughout, and we've been kind of looking in broad strokes, chapters 9 through 11, where Paul is vindicating the righteousness of God in relationship to the issue of what about the Jewish people? What about them? Why are they set aside? And he goes all the way back to explain that he has sovereignly chose them. And because he has sovereignly chose them, he can do with them as he sees fit. And he is free to choose Gentiles as well. And uh, he can also... He's also free to set aside the nation of Israel. And in this present church age, they are under discipline and set aside. And you might even say, in a sense, rejected. And that's not the end of the story, because chapter 11, the glorious chapter of this division of Romans, there's a future restoration. And we've just completed looking at the details concerning God restoring the nation of Israel and that restoration may not be far away. Now, as we've been going through chapters 9 through 11, I've been stressing the perfections of God. I use the word perfections instead of attributes because God's attributes are perfect. We've seen that God is a faithful God. He's going to be faithful to his promises, has been faithful to his promises, and will continue to be. That's the stress of verse 12. Underlying verse 20 is the graciousness of God to believing Gentiles. And then the specific word, the kindness to believing Gentiles as well in verse 22, and severity of God. God is a disciplining God, verse 22, to hardened Jews. That was the word that Paul uses in that context. The next verse, verse 23, God is able to restore the Jews because he is underlying that is his omnipotence. And verse 25, I think, stresses that God is sovereign over history. He will, in fact, move and bring Jews back into a relationship to himself. That's going to be future. So God is sovereign over history, and he will express a committed or loyal love for Israel in bringing bringing them into that saving relationship. And then verse 29, that uh, God maintains his calling and his purposes and his plan And all of his promises underlying that is the immutability of God. God does not change. And then the passages that we looked at last time, underlying 30 through 32, is he is a merciful God that shows mercy to both Jew and Gentile. 
and therefore mercy is available to whomever will call upon the name of the Lord. Now, these are the perfections of God, and since we're approaching a special time in in the year where we celebrate the incarnation, so this is your Christmas message as well, where God announced to Mary, the, the text tells us, in a city of Nazareth, and Jesus grew up in that location. Not born there, but uh, here's just a reminder of that. For those of you that went on the Israel trip, this is something that we drove near and by to remind us of the incarnation. And when we speak of incarnation, God becoming man. So everything that uh, we can say about God himself is true about the Lord Jesus Christ because he is God. So God is not only faithful and gracious and kind, but Jesus Christ is faithful, gracious, kind, severe, omnipotent, sovereign, loyal in his love, immutable, merciful. And some of these are hard to envision because what we're going to focus on today is that God is in fact incomprehensible. So the conclusion to this chapter, chapter 11, the future restoration of Israel, Paul is arguing there's always been a remnant so the setting aside of Israel has not been total. There's always been a remnant. So he uses passage from the Old Testament, he uses himself as an example. And so also in the first century, there is a remnant of Jews that have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. The early church was Jewish. And then he talks about that future restoration, 11 verses 11 through 32 that we just completed last week. And he concludes this with robust worship of God, 33 to 36. And the focus of 33 to 35, Paul is praising God for his incomprehensibility. And that's where we somewhat left off last time. I mentioned that writers indicate that uh, not only is this the conclusion, I believe, some focus on chapters 9 through 11 and see it as a conclusion to that larger portion or division. But I think it goes all the way to the beginning, all the way to the beginning of the book of Romans. And what he is doing is concluding a long, what we might describe as a teaching or doctrinal portion of the book. And then the next part, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, he's going to show how the principles that he's developed can be worked out in specific areas of life. Now, I decided not to give you an overview of that today, so we'll spend all of our time in 33 through 36. And next time, what I want to do is go through the entire 12 through 16 and give you an overview of the remaining, because maybe even before next Sunday, the rapture may take place. So I didn't want to leave you with an incomplete picture of the book of Romans. But today, praise for God's incomprehensibility, and we might say even the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many aspects of who he is that are incomprehensible. 
And what we mean by that is that apart from God revealing to us anything about himself, we would be totally in the dark. We would not know much about who God is, and certainly we never have a complete and total knowledge of him. It would require omniscience to be able to understand the totality of who God is. So God is incomprehensible. He's not not knowable. In other words, we can know him, but we know him only through revelation, only through what God has revealed, and particularly in his word, where we have special revelation. So that's kind of an overview of what we'll look at. And that's the stress, I think, of verses 33 through 35, at least. And one writer, in describing this concept, says the following. So verse 33 stresses God's person. And then Riddle, this is, I mentioned, this is not Glenn Riddle. This is a different Riddle. Some of you knew Glenn Riddle. If we have not understood chapters 1 through 8, all the way to verse 32, then we probably don't have the praise that Paul is describing here. And Riddle says, we have learned Paul's meaning only when we can join in this ascription of praise. So this is the natural and normal response to understanding the doctrines and the revelation that God has given us in uh, Romans chapter 1 through 11. So that begins in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And that's pretty much where we left off. My brief description of that first part there was probably not as clear as I wanted to make it. I was trying to indicate that when he refers to the depth of God, I think that kind of stands alone at the beginning there. And then the next three phrases, now there's debate over this. There's some scholars, in fact, the New American Standard even makes a distinction here. But you have three phrases, the depth of the riches, and literally in the Greek text, it would be of the riches or of riches, of wisdom, and of knowledge. Three phrases that seem to be in parallel with one another. Now, there is an and in there, and the New American Standard translates that and as both. So it does join, if you will, depth and riches together, and then slightly separates wisdom and knowledge. But however you want to take it, it's it's still praiseworthy, and it still communicates something of who God is. Oh, the depth. In other words, there's a depth there, and this is how he begins the concept of incomprehensibility. He's going to expand upon that. That depth is unsearchable. It's unfathomable. We cannot dig deep enough to exhaust all that God is. And it is rich. There's a richness to it. There's a, an immensity is what I described. The, the depth and of the riches looks at the immensity of God. And we can add that to our list of perfections. 
Hey, yes. I wanted to ask you a question. Go ahead. Don't you think that really imparts the fact that we, as human beings, even like we did in the Garden of Eden, in our pride, are still trying to fathom an unfathomable God? Our minds can't comprehend it because we're not God. That's right. He alone is God. Mm -hmm. And that just shows us how much we need him. Absolutely. Even in the garden, Adam and Eve did not fathom or understand the full depths of God, or theoretically, they would not have fallen into sin. So I agree with that. So we can add to our list, number 10, the immensity, the, the depth that uh, cannot ever be reached. And I think we will spend eternity learning and understanding more and more of who God is. And because we will always be finite, we will never be God. I think we will never, ever exhaust our understanding and insight into who God is. So there's an immensity, a, a richness that is beyond our comprehension. And that richness is not only rich, but it includes wisdom that we can never exhaust. Now, God has given us insight into wisdom. In other words, ultimate right and ultimate wrong, ultimate use of knowledge, wisdom, given us entire books that give us insight into what life is like and how to live life and the wisdom. But God knows every aspect of everything that he not only has created, but even everything outside of that creation. And that includes knowledge of God, knowledge of himself. There's a depth to it. And if you want to separate the richness, there's a richness of wisdom and a richness of knowledge as well. But a depth of wisdom that in the next phrase is unsearchable. So you can add to the list God is not only an immense God that is inexhaustible, but he's also a wise God. So it's wisdom to consult and to look to him for every aspect of living. In fact, to live apart from that wisdom is foolishness and only brings negative consequences into our experience. And that knowledge underlying the knowledge is his omniscience, where he knows all things, the knowledge of God. And that's the person, verse 33, the stress on the person. And then the verse goes on and describes what we might describe the works. So God's person and God's works are incomprehensible. And this is what's expressed by Paul. How unsearchable are his judgments. Now, the word judgments there, it's used in other contexts to refer to when God, when we commonly think of judgment, God punishing and disciplining. But I think there's a wider sense of the word as well that has the idea of broader in the sense of the things that God decides not only in terms of separating good and evil judgments in the sense that we generally think of, but also 
even the decisions, the, the, the plans and the decisions and the purposes that God has, they are unsearchable. And that is what Paul has been describing, this relationship with Jew and Gentile that was unknown in the Old Testament and now is revealed. Uh, we could not discover that. We could not figure that out. We're pleased only to have the revelation and God has, has given us that in chapters 9 through 11. But without that revelation, there's no way that we would understand those choices, those decisions. In fact, the whole doctrine of election that we've spent some time on, uh, that's unsearchable. There are some aspects. That's why we have a hard time with it. That's why we debate it and probably don't fully understand it. Some of us have come to a place of satisfying our intellect with it, but there are some aspects that go beyond our capability of understanding that doctrine. And there's others as well. The, the relationship between a sovereign God that has every electron under his control and sovereign control, and yet he's given man volition. How does that all fit together? How how does man and the choices that he make, is that, is that those choices, are they free? Are they constrained in some way? How does that balance out? Well, we may not be able to put all that together because those things are unsearchable. So what Paul is talking about here, not only is God unsearchable in his person, but he is unsearchable even in the things that he has revealed. We do not have the capacity as finite and incomplete beings to even understand fully even the things that he has revealed in Romans 1 through 8. So we can take comfort in that and simply trust him. And if you have a hard time with the doctrine of election, you can just trust him that it has to be true because he said that it is and also just trust him that I am responsible for all of the choices that I make as well. And God holds me accountable. How the two fit together, we may not be able to put together, even in our own thinking, but we leave it there and just trust him with it. And knowing that maybe when we go to be with him, we'll have further insight, but even then, some of his decisions and choices will be unsearchable. The word that is used there, we tried to pronounce it last time, anexeraunatas. Is that how you would do it, Nate? Nate went through it slowly as well. I think I corrected the spelling on it. Yeah, anexeraunatas. Yeah, not an easy one to pronounce. It's on alpha, the diphthong alpha, so on. That's a good one to give to your students to help them uh, learn their Greek. Not an easy word. The tongue twister for sure. Yeah. Inscrutable, unfathomable would be ways that you could describe the meaning of that word. And they are modifying his choices, decisions, judgments. Uh, another way of summarizing it, impossible to understand. So God is incomprehensible. To support that, why don't we have a couple of you read some other passages that uh, convey the same idea. This is not just in this passage. In fact, uh, the next verse, Paul is going to quote from an Old Testament passage 
that uh, gives us this idea of the incomprehensibility of God. Who wants to read the next passage in Job? Anyone want to jump in there, Job? I got it. Good. Go ahead, Steve. Job 11, 7. Can you discover the depths of God? Now, these are questions. These are questions that start off with expecting, obviously, a negative answer. Sorry, go ahead and keep reading. Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. So Job or God is trying to communicate here using kind of things that we can imagine at least or think about. If you can think of what is the highest that you can conceive of, the heavens, well, the depths of God, in other words, the same phrase that Paul uses is higher than that. You can't attain it. You can't even attain heaven, much less beyond that. So you can't discover that. You can't discover there's no limits. So when we speak of the incomprehensibility, we can't understand the infinity of God. God is an infinite God beyond beyond our finite understanding. So higher than the heavens and the deepest that you can conceive of is Sheol. That's in the Old Testament, the place of the dead. You can't even uh, reach that So how can you expect to know the depths of God? And then he uses uh, some other visuals in verse 9. Its measure is longer than the earth. So if you can uh, imagine the extent of the earth and broader than the seas. So Job 11.7 tells us of the incomprehensibility of God. Theologians describe it. A.W. Tozier, he is not exactly like anything or anybody. So there's no analogy. There's nothing that we can compare. The closest is that he has created man in his image, but because of sin, that is damaged and that's marred. And even Adam and Eve are a small representation in the image of God. So he's not exactly like anything or anybody. And that's the danger of idolatry right there. Whenever you try to represent God by something much less, you are misrepresenting him. Yes. And apart from his revelation, every concept of God that we create in our own thinking is a distortion of the one true God. So we are utterly dependent upon what God has said and revealed concerning himself. That's the incomprehensibility of God. WGT shed some of the characteristics of the divine nature cannot be known by a finite intelligence. That's incomprehensibility. Who wants to read Isaiah 55? Maybe Bill, because he loves this verse. Well, here's another one before that. Bill, why don't you look up Isaiah? Well, I've got Isaiah 55, 8. We can just read it. Hey. Oh, there, Ray. Yeah. Um, one comment. Would you uh, agree with the statement that what we do not know about God or what we cannot know about God, um, none of that will contradict what we do know or what he has revealed to us about himself? Would oh, you agree? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. There's a consistency and a reality of who God is that does not contradict. Yeah, I would agree with that. Who wants to read Psalm 139.6? Looks like Connie, you got your mic open. Sure. Psalm 139.6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And such knowledge about what God does or what God is doing. Remember the Psalm 139, talking about what he has done in the womb even. Too wonderful. Too high. I cannot attain it. It is impossible. Incomprehensibility. Bill, there's your verse, 55.8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And I think that sums it up in terms of what we can attain to, and they're beyond our thoughts, and his ways are beyond our ways. So there's a certain amount of mystery that we will never penetrate, and I think that applies even in the future state as well. Notice what... Go ahead, Bill. That's why eternal life is eternal, because that's how long it takes to get to know an infinite God. Exactly. And will never arrive. And in fact, I like to think of eternity as not the ticking of time, but a totally different state of existence that we will never exhaust. And if there is a ticking of time, we will never arrive because we're finite. God is beyond us. Who wants to read Matthew eleven twenty one? This is Jesus speaking of the incomprehensibility of the Son and also the incomprehensibility of the Father, because both are God. I will. Great. No one knows the Son, the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So there's there's a pretty complete description of incomprehensibility, but also the knowability of God. God is incomprehensible in that we cannot ever exhaust or fully understand him, but yet he has been pleased to reveal himself so that we might know him. And we come into that personal relationship when we trust in him. So we cannot comprehend the full understanding of the Son because he is God himself. In fact, if you look at the gospel descriptions of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's difficult to conceive of how, for example, if God is omnipresent, how can the how can God be omnipresent and at the same time inhabit a body, a human body, and be a human being localized? In fact, how can an omniscient God Jesus Christ, say that no one knows when uh, he will return in Matthew chapter, what is it, 24. Not even the Son knows, he says. So how can he be omniscient and at the same time limited in knowledge? There's a certain Ray, amount of mystery there. Ray, Go ahead. This brings to mind how apt the, the 
term for my little children is. Because just as we cannot attain and comprehend God, it's the same as a two-year-old understanding the purposes of his adult parents. What do they do? Where do they go? Why are they doing this? All the rest. And that is a, a finite example, but that is an example of our finiteness compared to the depths of, of God. And uh, so we, we think we know. Children think they know, but they don't understand. They don't know the purposes of the parents. They, they couldn't understand them if their parents told them sometimes. Why are, are we doing this or that? So to accept the fact that we are little children, we get to be proud thinking that we have such lofty thoughts and uh, vast wisdom when we're like a one or two or three-year-old child who has absolutely no clue what his parents are doing. That's a good thing to remind teenagers because they think they know everything. So that's the incomprehensibility, and also we touched on the knowability, which leads us to how do we come into an understanding. And just very quickly, just to kind of remind you concerning the knowability of God and how God reveals himself, let me just very quickly, just since we're on the topic, the knowability, he's not unintelligible when we speak of incomprehensibility. But it has this idea that you cannot frame any, it's not that you can't, cannot frame any idea about God, but it's beyond our complete understanding. And when we speak of incomprehensibility, our ideas are always incomplete. But God is knowable. In fact, there's lots of passages. I'll give you one in a moment here. But how do we come into a knowledge? Through general revelation, God reveals himself to every single human being that has ever lived and will ever be born. God has revealed himself through general revelation. The key verse there, would somebody read Romans 19 through 20? We were in that passage like four years ago. Or yeah, somewhere around four years ago. Somebody read Romans 1. And notice, I've kind of highlighted all of the words that kind of make it clear that God has revealed himself, known, evident, made evident, etc., clearly seen. Somebody read that, 19 through 20. Go ahead, Janie. Romans 1, 19 through 20. Um, well, I'm just going to read what's on your screen. <laughs> because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made so that they are without excuse. So it doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter when you lived. God has revealed himself and he's made it evident. In other words... God is the one that is making himself known and evident to all. And that revelation is clearly seen. His eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen. And it was understood through what has been made. In other words, the natural realm, there's revelation there that no one escapes making every single human being, no matter where they lived or when they lived, without excuse. 
without an apology, without an apologetic, you might say. The word there is without an apologetic or without a defense, without excuse. So God has revealed himself in his creation, and there's other avenues of general revelation. We won't get into them. But mainly, and even more clearly, God has revealed himself in special revelation. Just one passage. Would somebody read Deuteronomy 4.35? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is no other besides him. So God has revealed himself. Now, in this case, to the children of Israel, this is in Deuteronomy. This is even before they're a nation. God has made himself known and revealed himself and demonstrated that he is God. In fact, he did that in a very visible and a audible and physical way with the children of Israel and made it known that there is no other God. And there's many, many other verses that speak of that revelation of God. And the ultimate revelation is in his son. One more verse. Would somebody read John 1, 18? And notice it relates a little bit to incomprehensibility. No man has seen God at any time. Who wants to conclude it there? The only begotten of God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now, you students of Bible study, the word there, he has exegeted him or explained. He has reached the depths of God and made some of that known to us. And the reference there is to Jesus Christ. So in knowing him, we have a clearer understanding of who God is. So we can add a couple of things to our list here, his incomprehensibility, and when it referred to the justice of God or the judgments of God, we could say underlying that are God's justice, but even beyond that, I think is involved in that verse there. So his judgments are unsearchable and his ways are unfathomable. These are synonyms that uh, basically are talking about the same thing. And it's interesting that Paul probably uses these words because they start very similarly. And we won't try to pronounce this one as well, but there you have the transliteration in parentheses there. But it's relating to tracking down like an animal where you might track it down and hide and try to capture it with the alpha means that it, it cannot be tracked. And in relationship to God, you, you cannot track him down, if you will, in a visual way. You can't find him out or he is incapable of being investigated would be a good way to capture the meaning of unexized. I don't want to even pronounce it. Incapable of being investigated, that means that you can't discover him through science, you can't discover him through reason or philosophy or thinking in man's ways of trying to come to knowledge. We can't track him down in any way because he is incomprehensible. Now, we won't spend a lot of time, but basically in poetic language, 
In verses 34 and 35, we have the Old Testament support. And here Paul goes to a passage in uh, Isaiah and another one elsewhere as well, beginning in verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord? In other words, a series of questions again, and the obvious answer is no one has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? In other words, he is self-existent. Nothing can give him input. He is not in need of knowledge or understanding because he is omniscient and he does not require any any source outside of himself, no counsel from anyone. Uh, we could go on the next verse, or who has first given him? Everything comes from him. He is the creator. All good gifts come from him. We are the recipients. We are not the givers of anything when it comes to God. So who is given to him that it might be paid back? In other words, God is not in debt to anyone. In fact, this kind of reminds us, as, as we saw in verse 32, God has shut up everyone in disobedience and in order that he may show mercy. We are in need of mercy. There's nothing that we can earn or nothing that God is obligated in any way. He's not obligated to choose any. He's not obligated to save any. He's not obligated to in any way do anything on behalf of anyone else. We are utterly under his mercy. And that reminds us of his self-existence, self-existence of God. God has no needs whether in the area of intellect or knowledge or, or wisdom or counsel or material things because he is self-existent. So we, we praise a self-existent God. And that brings us to uh, verse 36, the conclusion. And we could spend hours on verse 36 but uh, let's take a quick look at it and a brief look at the essence of what he has here. This is something of a conclusion, the for, for from him, in other words, he is the source of everything. Everything comes from him. So from him being the source of everything as creator also, through him, that means that everything that takes place in the universe is through his agency, and certainly everything amongst mankind. God is the ultimate cause and the ultimate agent, except for sin. So all is through him. So we might say it is he is the instrumentality of everything that we can observe and see and every process or every action and then it concludes to him are all things in other words there's a purpose behind all things or you might describe that as the goal of everything that he has created is to him so from him, he's the source of everything, and through him, he's the instrumentality for all things, and to him, 
He is the goal or purpose for all things because we could add number 16, he is the creator of all things. So everything stem from him. And because of that, we could say to him be the glory forever. Amen. And that's your concluding statement in Romans 1 through chapter 11. And uh, if we had more time, we could talk more about the glory of God. And what Paul here is doing is simply ascribing glory. But if we took the time, we could see that there are various aspects of the glory of God. There is what we might describe the inherent glory of God. In other words, he is the only one that ultimately has glory and all glory comes from him. And he is glorious. When we speak of the glory of God, I think it's a biblical way of communicating to us the totality and the fullness and the composite of the attributes of God. And God is inherently glorious. And sometimes he manifests that in a visible brightness, you might say, or a light in a way that uh, impresses our senses, and sometimes even visually. So to him be the glory forever. And he has been pleased, since we're talking about incomprehensibility, to reveal his glory. That's his revelation. And he's been pleased to reveal it to us. And a concluding passage that we might look at, somebody read Deuteronomy 5.24. Uh, There's another passage that we could look at if we had more time, but I'll just reference it. But somebody read Deuteronomy 5.24 for us. And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that God speaks with man, yet he lives. That's a tremendous passage on the glory of God, and he's been pleased to reveal himself to us. And as we uh, approach Christmas, focus on the glory of God and the revelation that we have in his son, in that manger, that little baby, the, the glory of God is revealed. So that's probably a good place to stop today. Any other comments that anyone wants to make? What other passage were you going to refer to? The other passage is that whole Exodus 33 passage. In fact, I've got it on the screen here. And since you're interested, why don't you read it? Since we have a couple of minutes here. Connie? I've got it on my phone. and your little- I'll, read it. I'll read it for you. Okay, go ahead, Jim. Then Moses said, I pray you show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. And it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my my hand and until I have passed by. Okay. Notice Moses prays that God will reveal his glory, and 
God gives him a glimpse and notice uh, the attributes or the perfections that uh, expand upon that glory. And this is the basis for that idea that the glory is something of a summation that tries to capture in one word the uh, perfections of God that include goodness, graciousness, compassion, and that glory passed by. Notice it starts with the glory and ends with the glory there. And in between are the perfections of God. So we can bow before our incomprehensible God. Who wants to close for us today? Our Father, our God, uh, help us to remember and to meditate on the description of these perfections that are presented to us today that, uh, that we might be not only encouraged but live lives that do indeed honor you and respect you and uh, attract others uh, to come to you. We thank you for the teaching that we've had today, and, and uh, we pray for Ray as uh, he continues to teach us that you'll uh, guide and direct his life and guard him from the evil one. And I pray that all that are participating in this class will be greatly um, uh rewarded as a meditate on the, this lesson throughout the week in Jesus name. Amen. Merry Christmas. <laughs> the only the only problem is that uh because we're imperfect that list is probably incomplete. <laughs> it, it is absolutely, absolutely yeah. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Bye. I have a question for Nate. Okay, Denise. Nate. I wanted to ask, how is Ruth Ann and, and her and her leg? Uh, um, the uh, her leg is doing better. She got a scan. She doesn't have any fractures in her leg, so she went to a chiropractor, and um, I think that that's helping. So little by little, thankfully, she's getting better. I think. Now you need to now you need to tell the rest of us what happened. Well, we don't know. She just, all of a sudden, she started getting these excruciating pains, and it wasn't constant. It would move, and I don't know if she overdid something from running, or I don't know if it's having too many babies, or lifting something, or but just excruciating pain at night that would wake her up, and then it'd go away, and then it would come back. So I think it's maybe related to the sciatic nerve, um, muscle spasms, pressing on it, or... Which leg, right or left? The left. Thank you. This sounds like what I have at times, but it's it's because of a herniated disc. Okay, well, I hope you all do have a merry and blessed Christmas. Yes, Merry Christmas to all. Amen. And God bless everybody. Thanks for being part of this. Merry Christmas. Bye. Merry Christmas. Good. Love you all.